politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back to your respite from the soap opera here in politics at the Conservative Review. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house for this Wednesday, August 14th. And uh, like any mid-August during congressional recess, it is a breeding ground for soap operas because people in this industry that don't believe in anything and have no values and no substance, no investigative work, they have nothing to talk about. So they have to find stupid things to focus on. And hence uh, what you're going to hear on radio today, unfortunately, from many people who call themselves conservatives. But there are issues that are going on that sit at the nexus of the most foundational public policy issues that really anyone, not just conservatives, should care about. What sort of people are we going to let into our country? What sort of people are we letting into our country? Welfare. Are we now a welfare agency for the entire world? Let me start off. And there's going to be a lot of important history lessons today. So bookmark this as episode 471. You're going to want to listen to this show over and over again. And my book here, Stolen Sovereignty, as you can see here, a block in my face, um, I noted, and I have an entire chapter dedicated to this, chapter six in the book, on our founding values on immigration, their views towards immigrants, what sort of immigrants we want, what sort we don't want, what amounts we want. And anyone who understands history will know that what we have today from illegal immigration and a lot of segments of our irresponsible chain migration in the legal immigration system is antithetical to our founding beliefs on immigration as well as welfare and certainly the mixture of the two from the colonial times until really this generation of leftists. And even people on the right are, are getting bought into this. So that's why for all of time, we need to lay down the marker about what's going on today. So in the 1790 debate over naturalization. This is really the first immigration act of Congress. You could imagine it's the founding membership of the House of Representatives. These guys are the guys that were largely at the convention, many who signed all of the founding documents, the Declaration, the Articles, the Constitution. So Representative Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts, he warned of the effects of mass migration. And by the way, he was talking about from Europe, from the very countries of their own ancestry. And he said the following, the citizens of America prefer this country because it is to be preferred. The like principle he wished might be held by every man who came from Europe to reside here. But there was at least some grounds to fear the contrary. Their sensations impregnated with prejudices of education acquired under mon monarchical and aristocratical governments may deprive them of that zest for pure republicanism, which is necessary in order to taste its beneficence with that gratitude which we feel on the occasion. And then that's what he went on to say, we'll only invite in, quote, reputable and worthy characters that are, quote, fit to the society into which they were blended. 
very simple common sense principle. And I would argue the overwhelming number of Americans, whatever their background, first generation, seventh generation American, agrees with those sentiments today. They were common sense. You can't get more of a foundational value. See, this discussion over immigration, what's immigration? Immigration and welfare. What does the Statue of Liberty mean? What's the sacred poem of the new Colossus from Emma Lazarus placed on the statue? By the way, as we're going to discuss, several decades after the project was conceived and 17 years after it was dedicated and erected, um, where it is today at Liberty Island in New York. But these are all foundational questions, and they sit at the nexus of what determines America. The disagreement we're having with the left over immigration and welfare and public charge and many other immigration issues really are downstream from the disagreement we all seem to have over what is America, what is republicanism, what is liberty. And therefore, if you understand what that is, you're going to bifurcate based on that opinion what sort of immigration you want and don't want. So this is going to be very important, but I wanted to lay that down as, as a marker. The next piece of information I want to give you here that I think is really, really important is from a man named James Blaine. Now, you might not, you might have never heard of this guy, um, but I think it's important nonetheless to go through this. You have to remember that during our early years, we've said this a number of times, our government did not, our federal government did not have immigration laws. So the states and the colonies before them were primarily responsible for regulating immigration. And there's a number of reasons for that I go through in my book, Stolen Sovereignty. Now, even though the government didn't formally regulate immigration Really, the first thing in 1875, the Page Act, and more robustly wasn't really until 1881 through legislation, through Congress, but the State Department really controlled it in many ways that people don't realize. Back then, the equivalent of restricting immigration was not inviting it. In other words, especially in the early 1800s and certainly in the late 1700s with our founding generation, if you didn't invite immigrants, if you didn't have more, more or less a treaty or some informal agreement with the host nation that they were emigrating from, they didn't come. That's just how it was. You didn't have passenger uh, ships for the most part. You had cargo ships. People came at, really at a slow pace and a trickle. and the equivalent of restriction was really just not encouraging it. And what I note in my book is if you look at every founder, it's almost eerie, and I researched this, they use the same language from Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, Quincy Adams, Monroe. We don't encourage emigration. By the way, they use the word emigration with an E to connote or denote both coming from and coming to. Right now we use emigration coming from, immigration going to, they use the E word. It, the, the word immigration with an I didn't seem to appear until sometime after the Civil War. But anyway, they didn't encourage it. They were very adamant, we do not encourage it. They didn't believe in immigration 
not immigrants, but immigration as an institution to mollycoddle and promote. They wanted, they were hands, hands back. We're not going to encourage you. Now, they weren't going to stop you. But now, nowadays, if you didn't regulate it, you know, the whole world would come. But back then, what that meant is a handful of people would come under the act of the most really rugged individualism. And you were, I mean, you were here alone, sink or swim, no ties to anything, no welfare, nothing. And, and, they, were, and they were fine with that. And they wanted people like that. They weren't anti-immigrant, but they, they didn't want to encourage mass migration. Now, one of the things, so what, what the State Department would do is, you have to realize most countries back then weren't free. So you couldn't emigrate on your own anyway, which is why they didn't need to regulate it. They would just tell the host nation's monarch or government, hey, buddies, you know, we're not taking any people from you or don't, don't send them. And if they didn't actively send them, they wouldn't really come. So this is really in 1881, December 1881. It was actually the first year they passed immigration legislation. But you see this. James Blaine was the Secretary of State under President Chester Arthur. And he said the following to a diplomat in Switzerland. And he said very clearly, while under the Constitution and the laws, this country is open to the honest and the industrious immigrant, it has no room outside of its prisons or almshouses for depraved and incorrigible criminals or hopelessly dependent paupers who may have become a pest or a burden or both to their own country. <laughs> 1881, two years before Emma Lazarus wrote that famous poem. So as a baseline, our country has now become a dumping ground for the worst criminals, drugs, gangs, public charges imaginable. We have some good legal immigrants, just like in the past, but we have too many that aren't and, and too many that are a public charge and certainly illegal immigration. And it's a violation of our, of our most foundational values, deeply rooted in our Declaration of Independence, deeply rooted in what America is about. America is about republicanism and liberty. And if you fundamentally transform it with values foreign to it, then you don't, that, that's the surest way to destroy America. This is why we focus here at the Conservative Review so much on these issues. So that's the story with that. Now, let's, let's move away from the book a little bit. So we have this week where the president introduced a very modest enforcement of public charge. The way I explain it is if current law is at a 10, meaning no one should be a burden on America, current law rooted in hundreds of years of principle in this country, current practice is at a zero, we don't enforce it at all, the Trump administration has taken it from a zero to a two. Okay, that's all it is. But nonetheless, the left and the media is going crazy and they're fighting with Ken Cuccinelli, who seems to be the only one pushing an agenda in this administration, the acting USCIS director. You're violating the, the principle of the poem on the Statue of Liberty. So at a baseline, it's indefensible to argue that with so many Americans on welfare and so many people wanting to come here, including many who will not be on welfare, it is indefensible from any standpoint to argue that we should invite in people who will, who will be on welfare. Okay, that is, that is a 90-10 issue if you would poll it, and nobody wants that, and, and they know it. 
It's indefensible. So what do they say? They say, well, what about the poem written by Emma Lazarus on the Statue of Liberty saying, give me your tired and poor and huddled masses? Isn't that saying, bring me your poor people? So before we explain the true meaning of the Statue of Liberty, that it had nothing to do with the poem originally, it actually had nothing to do with immigration. It had to do with what America fundamentally is, and that principle is what they're actually violating with this sort of immigration, and how they don't even understand the poem and why it was put on there. I first want to just explain the enigma of how everything else at that very time stood in stark contrast. And I'm going to have a very long article out detailing this. So if you want any sources and the links, it's going to be in the article that we'll put up in show notes. And it's just, just coming out today. So obviously this new Colossus poem was written by Emma Lazarus in 1883. It wasn't put on the statue until... 20 years later in 1903. And that's going to be very important, very important detail here. So let's, let's go through some of our, our immigration laws. In 1882, okay, that is the year before the poem was crafted. Overwhelmingly, Congress passed the following law. They passed the Immigration Act of 1882, instructing Treasury officials to get on board any ship coming in with passengers who are seeking entry and to vet out all public charges. Quote, this is from Section 2 of the 1882 bill. If on such examination there shall be among such passengers any convict, lunatic, idiot, <laughs> or <laughs> or any person unable to take care of himself or herself without becoming a public charge, such pers persons shall not be permitted to land. Shall not be permitted. They couldn't even step foot on our soil for a minute. That's how careful we were. The year before that poem was written, Section 4 of the bill required that the cost of returning the public charges be quote borne by the owners of the vessels in which they came so we have to spend all this money like deporting people no the american people the principle was they shouldn't spend a penny on on any immigration coming to the country even enforcement those responsible had to pay for bringing them back in 1885 two years later three years later but two years after this famous new colossus poem Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your huddle, Huddled Masses Yearning to Breathe Free was published, they passed the Contract Labor Law of 1885. Now, what happened was, a decade before they had a treaty with the China, uh, Emperor of China to bring in Chinese laborers into California. And it just didn't work out good socially. And, and I, I talk about this all the time. Immigration, as Theodore Sedgwick said, has to be meant to blend in with society. You can't bring in a bunch of young males for cheap labor that aren't designed to assimilate into our culture. It's not good for anyone. It's not good for them. It's not good for the country. And, and problems happened. And unfortunately, it created a lot of backlash against all Asians at the time. And, you know, and, and that led to under these bills we're talking about, they excluded all Asians. Um, which again, obviously we don't want to do 
and Calvin Coolidge later on opposed a categorical ban. But it is important to note that for those saying like, oh, we're not allowed to ban certain people and races or or religions, it's not true. We can. Whether it's a nice thing to do or whether it's a prudent thing to do is a policy question. But legally, constitutionally, as a sovereign nation, we could ban anyone with green eyes and red hair. Uh, but I digress. So anyway, what happened was this was in response to that. Congress was like, we're done with this cheap labor. And you know how we now have this slave labor of all these corporations bringing in people. This law actually banned the transportation of anyone coming in for cheap manual labor, contract labor. And. And uh, it banned it might have been in 1885 or it might not have been until 1891. They added the provision banning criminalizing the advertisement of anyone to come for contract labor and it made them inadmissible and if you're caught coming here because of that you're deportable yada yada now what's interesting is is section five of that 1885 law it explicitly exempted those being transported for jobs or being advertised for jobs that were skilled they said you know ministers and arts and culture with the things that were important at the time they exempted it so very clearly, their message was, we want skilled people. We don't want cheap labor. We don't want people coming for it. Again, at the very time in the very years, Emma Lazarus's poem was constructed. In 1891, Congress added to existing categories of inadmissibility those convicted of, quote, a misdemeanor, misdemeanor involving moral torpitude, still the law today, in addition to felonies, polygamous paupers, paupers, there you go, and those suffering from contagious diseases. In addition to requiring a full interview with an immigration official, all immigrants had to undergo a medical exam, and anyone found to have a contagious disease was immediately quarantined and deported. Also, all immigrants who were found to be a public charge up to a year after being legally admitted to the country were de deportable under this bill. And by the way, all these people that they said were deportable if they were found to be one of the inadmissible categories. Do you think for a minute they left their American-born children? No, they brought them back with them because there's no such thing as birthright citizenship for people that are here illegally. And those people were originally let in through consent. Certainly those today that evade detection and come in without permission. And certainly those who are deported and come back again against our will and have kids. That's a different story. We could talk about that another time. They added throughout the 1890s and early 1900s up through 1917, they kept tightening and tightening and tightening. So at the time of our largest expansive expansion of immigration, 1881 to 1917 or so, the great wave of immigration, we actually had the toughest, toughest laws. They, they said if you're feeble-minded, you're inadmissible. So you could have, and this happened all the time, a nice family would come over. They're not going to be a harm at all. They'll, they'll take a look at one kid and said, feeble-minded, inadmissible. So th they didn't exactly mollycoddle people back then. In 1903, the very year the poem was placed on the Statue of Liberty, okay? The very year the poem was placed on the Statue of Liberty, Congress added four more categories. Anarchists, people with epilepsy, professional beggars, and those who import prostitutes. In, exist, in addition to the existing bans, 
on paupers and public charge. Now, those of you who are experts in Old English language, you could tell me the difference between beggars, paupers, and public charge, but they were all separate categories. <laughs> so, folks, at the very time of the Statue of Liberty being erected in 1886, the poem being published in 1883, and then the poem being placed on the statue in 1903, we had laws that were tougher and enforced stronger than any of us are even suggesting today. What gives? So, so first of all, that's the truth. I don't care about a poem, a statue. That is our laws. Those are our history. That's incontrovertible. Now, you might ask, okay, Daniel, so what is with the Statue of Liberty? What is with the poem? What does it mean? What does it mean? So here's where history is very important and where you've been lied to for so many years about our history. And understanding the values behind the statue, the poem being placed on it, what sort of immigration we wanted and didn't want, the problem is you first have to understand what America is. And nowadays, we can't even agree on what America is, and that's why we bifurcate on immigration policy. And it all ties back to the statue, and this is why the statue is so important. So it's important to remember the Statue of Liberty predated anything on immigration. <laughs> it had nothing to do with immigration at its you know, inception. It was conceived, the idea was planned between American and French government officials already in the 1860s. They were looking forward towards the centennial, which was going to be in 1876, of our, um, our founding, or at least the Declaration of Independence, our independence. And of course, the symbolism was, you know, France helped us more than anyone with our independence, and they were planning for some sort of gift. And it took a while to get off the ground, and they started sending the pieces in the 1870s, they started assembling it, and they had some of it, the torch, on display in 1876 um, at this uh, centennial celebration. Now, if you look at it, it wasn't another 10 years until it was even constructed in its current location in 1886, it was, um, I believe, in October. I'm trying to check my notes here. It was, it was late in the year in 1886 when it was finally constructed. All along, it was never even called the Statue of Liberty originally. That was a later term, kind of a lazy term, because... Uh, you know, we didn't um, want to call it by its full name. Grover Cleveland, originally in the 1880s, when he created a commission for this celebration, and he sent a letter to Congress about it, and I'm going to have a link to it in, in the article, it was called The Liberty Enlightening the World. Now, it's easy to understand why the name got changed. Hey, take a look at that Liberty Enlightening the World. What the Statue of Liberty was, was an expression by America and France of what America was. Nothing to do with immigration. Nothing to do with it. 
It had to do with July 4th. It had to do with 1776, 1789. Republicanism, liberty. You, Europe, are a bunch of losers. You have a terrible system. This is breaking with the new. It's not a matter of begging people to come here. It's projecting liberty, enlightenment to the world. Remember, it looks like the great Colossus, and that's where Emma Lazarus eventually, which we'll get to in a minute, took the new Colossus poem, the Colossus of Rhodes. It was a symbol of enlightenment, of light. It, the, the Lady Liberty is, is stretched out forward towards Europe with a torch. We're enlightening with our values, whether you're here as a native, as an immigrant, whoever you are, it doesn't matter. As America, our values of liberty, republicanism, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, rugged individualism, true equality, no monarch, but no handouts, no regulations, but no subsidies. That's what America meant at our founding, and that's what America still meant in the 1870s, 1880s, and early 1900s, really well until after World War II, until starting with the Great Society and going downhill until the days we live in today. That's what America meant, and that's what the Statue of Liberty was referring to, okay? So it never even got off the ground. It had nothing to do with immigration. And then it stood there for 17 years in that very location from 1886 to 1903 without a poem. If you would have talked to anyone back then, right now you mentioned Statue of Liberty, the first thing on anyone's mind is immigration, right? It's a symbol of immigration. Nobody would have said that back then. What happened was, and this is, you can look it up. I linked to it. It's a New York Times article um, explaining, explaining what this is. Where is this? And they quote a historian explaining exactly, exactly what was meant by it. There was a man named Barry Moreno, a historian quoted in the New York Times, that he said the Statue of Liberty itself, quote, was never built for immigrants. It was paid, it was built to pay tribute to the United States of America and the Declaration of Independence, American democracy and democracy throughout the world. It honored the end of slavery, honored the end of all sorts of tyranny, and also a friendship between France and America. Right, very simple. That's what it was. Anyone who's educated knows that to be true. He goes on to explain that what happened was because of its location in the harbor in New York where the immigrants came in, and it was right around then in the 1880s when the Great Wave started, over the ensuing 10, 15, 20 years, it started to become associated just with the immigrants coming in. Hey, that's the first thing they see, Lady Liberty. But even when it became associated with immigration, it was the immigration values of that time. American values. You're going to come to assimilate into America. Assimilation. No, no handouts. Rugged individualism. You're going to share and promote our values, not bring your values. No convicts. No criminals. No harm to Americans. You're going to be part of the American mosaic of promoting that liberty. Welfare is antithetical to liberty. That's what it meant. And that's why... In 1903, they put the, the new Colossus, our enlightenment to the rest of the world, on that, on, on, on the statue. 
Perhaps there's nobody around who has better explained this than our very own Glenn Beck at, at Blaze Media. At his CPAC address in 2010, it was one of his greatest moments. He said, I'm going to dispel for, for you here, right here today, the myth of what the poem and the Statue of Liberty mean. And he first went on to read the poem in a real wimpy language, like the way nowadays you're taught in, unfortunately, in these schools. Oh, give me your, please give me all your poor and tired. And then he went on to say, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. Folks, take a listen. The poem on the Statue of Liberty, it's always read like this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Well, if you read it like that and you really think it through, what are we? A hospital? <laughs> what are we? Are we? Is the Statue of Liberty saying to Europe, guys, Europe, you're never going to make it with, oh, that refuse? Send it over to me. We'll take care of it over here. We'll, we'll just, so we're trying to set you, you're never going to succeed with all that riffraff. Come on, send it over here. You guys can get busy and do some work. That's not what it means. It was never intended to read that way. Remember, the Statue of Liberty was mocking the old system. The Statue of Liberty was used to ignite inside the French liberty. Look at America. Look what they're doing. It was meant to be read like this. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here, at our sea-washed sunset gates, shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep your ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse from your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, the tempest-tossed to me. I hold... I hold my lamp beside the golden door. That, that is the message. Even the people that you reject can make it here. They will give it all to be successful here. You can make it here. Wasn't that beautiful? I still get nostalgia from that era of the Tea Party when Republicans in the CPAC room were so righteous on our values because Barack Obama was in power. Just like in the era of the judges, the biblical era, you know, we're always the most righteous in a time of trouble. But when Republicans are in charge and they espouse leftist values, somehow we're all just sleeping at, 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 at the wheel. But anyway, Glenn's point was just beautiful. 
And with this elaborate background we gave you, now you can understand better what Glenn was saying. This had, even after the poem was put on there, it still wasn't fundamentally an expression of immigration. It was an expression of Americans. Give us your tired and poor, meaning you Europeans with your tyranny, with your socialism, with your monarchs, with your giving privileges to one and to another. This guy and that guy. You guys make poor people out of rich people. Our system, give us even poor people and we'll make prosperous people out of them. We'll make them out of them. It meant the Americans already here as well as the immigrants coming. It wasn't directly an expression of immigration. It didn't mean we're inviting the world's impoverished to come here and just take America down. It was no to become a part of America. Become a part of America. And this is why people forget Calvin Coolidge, President Coolidge in 1924, in November, just five months after signing the Reed-Johnson Act, shutting off almost all immigration, first dedicated designated the Statue of Liberty as a national monument. Well, isn't that a paradox? You designate and then you, you know, close your doors? What happened to the Golden Door? No, that was in concert with our values. We let in a number of immigrants. It was getting a, a bit much at that point, and we needed to cool down. And you know what? History has shown all of us descendants of the Great Wave, it benefited all of us, that we didn't constantly reinforce it for another 50 years like we're doing today. Those were the values that we're not going to fundamentally transform America. We want to keep our liberty mindedness. We don't want it to be a public charge. That's what the poem and that's all about. And that's the thing the America they were coming to seeing that inscription in 1903 and the type of immigrants coming were qualitatively different. The America was different. The immigrants were different and one's related to another. Because the left that thinks our values of come here means come here on welfare, they don't understand what America is. That's really the problem here. Let me read to you from John Quincy Adams a letter he wrote to a dignitary of Germany in 1819. This is when Quincy Adams was Secretary of State under James Monroe. So this guy asked him, basically, this German wanted to know, hey, I'm an aristocratic guy. If I come to America, could I get a position in government? And, you know, basically, he says, I received your letter. Um, no doubt it will be useful to those of your countrymen in Germany who may have entertained erroneous ideas with regard to the results of emigration from Europe to, the, to this country. It was explicitly stated to you, and your report has taken just notice of the statement that the government of the United States has never adopted any measure to encourage or invite emigrants from any part of Europe. It has never held out any incitements to induce the subjects of any other sovereign to abandon their own country to become inhabitants of this. From motives of humanity, it was occasionally furnished facilities to emigrants who has who who having arrived here is this is written um 
and and uh it's just uh the ink is really uh, rubbed out here um with views of forming settlements have have especially needed such assistance to carry them into effect neither the general government of the union nor those of the ind- individual states are ignorant or unobservant of the additional strength and wealth which accrues to the nation by the accession of a mass of healthy, industrious, and frugal laborers, nor are they in any manner insensible to the great benefits which the country has derived and continues to derive from the influx of such adopted children of Germany. But there is one principle which pervades all the institutions of this country and which must always operate as an obstacle to the granting of favors to newcomers. This is a land not of privileges, but of equal rights. And he has that in italics. Privileges are granted by European sovereigns to particular classes of individuals for purposes of general policy. But the general impression here is that privileges granted to one denomination of people can very seldom be discriminated from erosions of the rights of others. Emigrants from Germany, therefore, or from elsewhere coming here are not to expect favors from the governments. They are to expect, if they choose to become citizens, equal rights with those of the natives of the country they are to expect if affluent to possess the means of making their property productive with moderation and with safety if but if indigent if but if indigent um to be industrious honest and frugal the means of obtaining easy and comfortable subsistence for themselves and their families they come to a life of independence but to a life of labor and if they cannot accommodate themselves to the character moral political and physical of this country with all its Compensating balances of good and evil, the Atlantic is always open to them to return to the land of their nativity and their fathers. There's more, and it's published in Niles Register, April 29th, 1820. It's going to be linked to in this long article I have out today. That Those are the values of America and the values of immigration as expressed by John Quincy Adams. And it was universal. It was universal really until this generation. It was always understood that way. The America of that time couldn't fathom redistributing wealth, taking from taxpayers and giving any welfare at a state or federal level to anyone among Americans, much less invite 7.8 billion people in the world to come and partake in that. That was the America they were coming to. So by definition, if you are coming poor, not poor, whatever it is, it was sink or swim. That's the America they were coming for. The America that the left has fundamentally transformed both through welfare and through immigration, irresponsible immigration policies, is doing the opposite. It's the very America that this, it's the very antithesis of America that the Statue of Liberty was coming to mock. It's the European socialism. They cannot be farther from the truth on the values of this country, on welfare, on immigration, and the meaning of the statue, and even the poem. You're not going to hear this anywhere else, but that's what we're here for. Connected to that, the America was different. The quality of the immigrants were different too. And this is what people need to understand. In my book, in Chapter 7 of Stolen Sovereignty, I list about a dozen distinguishing factors between both America and the, and the immigrants during the times of the Great Wave as opposed to this great, 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 great wave that's never-ending. And among them is this point. 
not only are we bringing them in on welfare, because we have welfare as a crutch, dependency, even for Americans, they don't become, they, they rarely have upward mobility. It just perpetuates dependency, certainly for people coming as immigrants. It does the exact opposite of taking poor people and making them industrious. It does the exact opposite of the message of the poem and why it was placed on a placard on the, on the Statue of Liberty. According to the Center for Immigration Studies, 63% of immigrant-run households are on welfare, about over 80% if you include the refundable tax credits, 30, compared to 35% of native, native households. Now, you might think, okay, maybe as time goes on, there's upward mobility. No. 49.6% of those households here less than 10 years are on welfare, but 70% of those here more than 10 years are on welfare because then they're able to access more. But they don't go, go, go backwards. It's the exact opposite of the values that we talked about. Back then, we didn't have any of this. We didn't have any of this. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, if you want to know what a liberal Democrat used, used to be, he wasn't a Southern Democrat. He was a New York Democrat. But he was sane. He had, we didn't disagree over the fundamentals of what America was. So people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say what I say today. New York Democrat. That's the seat that, um, that Hillary Clinton took over. I I'm young and I remember him. I remember him on the news all the time. 20 years ago. It's not that long ago. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote in an essay in 1986. He was trying to say, contrary to this nostalgic revisionism about the Statue of Liberty and oh, the poor and huddled masses. And he himself dispelled this. He said the Great Wave, of which he was a product of, were not the wretched refuse of anybody's shores. They were extraordinary, enterprising, self-sufficient folk who knew exactly what they were doing and doing it quite on their own. Thank you very much, end quote. Self-reliance, rugged individualism, what Ken Cuccinelli is talking about today. That's what you had back then. And this leads to a broader, much broader point that needs to be discussed. And that is what people don't understand is qualitatively, whether it's politics, culture, identity, values, socioeconomic status, education, you name it, the gap between the European immigrants of that era and Americans was much sm smaller than the gap between America today, all developed first world countries, and so many coming from the third world today, from Haiti, El Salvador, Guatemala, Bangladesh, Somalia. In all those 10 or so defining characteristics I just mentioned, it's light years apart. It may as well be Mars and, and Earth. It's very important to recognize that that the context of what you're bringing in, what you're fundamentally transforming. Remember, we started off the, the show with Theodore Sedgwick's quote, that we wanted an America a certain way. 
And we have to make sure that immigration, while there's certain good qualities, we want high-skilled people, we want people that are gonna assimilate, we want people that will produce, but numbers matter, origin matters, timing matters, and the circumstances over which they're bringing, being brought into, and the America to which they're being brought does matter. So, 0% of them were on welfare back then because we didn't have welfare. Reuters has an article out yesterday quoting the Migration Policy Institute. They said, oh my gosh, so many immigrants are gonna be thrown out on the street. Under the new criterion, 69% of already established immigrants would have at least one negative factor against their, them under the administration's wealth test, while just 39% would be, have a positive factor. Folks, that's a self-indictment of the existing system. That's why we need these rules. 70% would fail the public charge test. That means our current immigration system of chain migration, of boxing out skilled people by having it based off of relatives and because of certain political mistakes, we've had only third world immigration or mainly third world immigration for several decades, so now it's just pumping itself out. So if you have a guy from Europe or anywhere in the world who is a doctor, he wants to assimilate, he loves America's values, but he has no relatives because they haven't been coming from these countries. But we have someone from El Salvador who's an MS-13 guy, um, but has relatives here. Guess what? Your application boxes out the other guy. That's what we're getting now. We do have still some good immigrants, people listening to this show, that, that are in the same spirit of the immigration experience of the Great Wave. But I want 100% of the immigrants to be like the 30, not like the 70% that we have now. That should be the goal that we should all strive for, strive towards. That's the goal that we've always held since our founding. So again, let's go to Senator Patrick Moynihan. In that same essay, he said as follows, just as important, the Europe they left behind had attained a general degree of civility and legality unknown in its history. If political rights were not always advanced, civil rights generally were. The newcomers did not learn the rule of law in New York. And then he actually quipped, you know, because he was a New Yorker. So he was able to say this, quote, more likely they noticed the regression. You know, he was kind of dissing New York City there. But the point is, you know, my relatives who came from Austria, Germany, Poland, whatever, during the Great Wave, yes, they were different than the natives, but not that different in terms of education, in terms of poverty, in terms of values. The gulf wasn't that wide. You have to remember, as of 1910, only... 10% of Americans graduated high school. A lot of people were still illiterate. Most people lived in what we would describe today as poverty. So that's why not only didn't we have a welfare system, but if you came, if you were impoverished coming in, so first of all, we didn't have welfare and you still were inadmissible if you were a public charge because we were scared you would be a drain on the NGOs and the safety net we had through the nonprofits back then. So we did have a standard. But nonetheless, 
there's a reason why nowadays anyone who would be considered poor back then would be inadmissible because it's just the gap between where Americans are. Why should we have that if there's so many millions of people who want to come here who aren't poor? And especially because you will be a public charge and we do have welfare. You look at Latin America, this is from Stephen Camerata. Among those mo coming here, 57% have less than a high school education. 27% graduated high school but went no further. Only 10% enrolled in some college. Only 4% have a bachelor's degree and 2% an advanced degree. Compared to about like 67, 70% of Americans now um, around the age of 25 who have a college degree and over 90% who graduated high school. The gap is huge. The gap between America and most people, there are exceptions, and under a merit-based system, we wouldn't discriminate wherever you're from. If you pass it, you pass it. But if you're from El Salvador, Haiti, Somalia, these countries are so different. It just, there, there's so much more in this piece I have coming. But we have to remember, we have to remember, and I'm, I'm running out of time. I don't even have the numbers here, but there's one other important factor. Remember, there was one major difference. That placard was placed on the, on the um, Statue of Liberty, and the Statue of Liberty was erected in the harbor there in New York at the beginning, the foothill of the Great Wave. Today, we don't sit at what's equivalent of 1886. We sit at what's equivalent to 1921 and 1924 by a magnitude of 100. After a fraction of that Great Wave, a fraction of that Great Wave, we, um, we shut it off. We shut it off. 17.9 million green cards were issued from 1896 to 1924. If you take an equivalent 17-year period, ending through 2017, 15.4 million. No, I'm sorry. Um... 30 million immigrants were given green cards, and that doesn't include over the same period of time. Over the same period of time, millions upon millions of unassimilable illegal immigrants. 30 million to 18 million. And the trajectory is much, much worse. Also, remember, most people died young back then. They didn't have time to naturalize. So we only added about um, only added about 4.3 million people as naturalized citizens. Now, under the equivalent period since 96, we've added 15.4 million. The numbers are much greater. And the numbers were a fraction of where they were. And yet on February 22nd, 1921, while they were going to craft a long-term bill, they said, look, this is too much. They temporarily shut off all immigration for three years. That bill passed the Senate 78 to 1 and passed the House 
without a recorded vote. Unanimous. Those were the values, unanimous at the time. And it worked. It worked for the immigrants here. It worked for America. We are on a trajectory now that's going to blow this out. Going to blow this out. If you look from 1880 to 1970, that 90-year window, the immigration population, despite the Great Wave, had only increased by 44%, while over the same period of time, the native-born population increased 306%. Fast forward, if you want to take a the similar 90-year window from 1970, when the Kennedy bill started taking effect, 1970, until if you project out to 2060, here are the numbers. By that point, the immigrant population is projected to have grown over the 90-year period 715%, while the native population of only 77%. Folks, you can't have a country that way. It's the numbers, it's the quality, it's the values, it's the origin, it's the mass migration, it's the public charge, it's the welfare. You cannot compare in any way to what was going on then. It's not that all immigrants are like that now, but there's far, far too many. I want to close with a passage in my book, just bringing out this point from Ronald Reagan. Perhaps the most glaring contrast between this great wave and the early wave of immigration is the difference in character of the America to which they were emigrating. During the first half of the 20th century, America had a very strong culture and an unflinching sense of patriotism and Americanism permeating every facet of society. Nobody expressed this dichotomy better than Ronald Reagan toward the end of his farewell address in 1989. Quote, Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American, and we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you could get them from your neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea or the family who lost on at Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movie celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that too through the mid-60s. This America... Now, end quote, this is me. This America was the country that absorbed the immigrants of the Great Wave. The cultural pressure to assimilate and Americanize was too impervious for any ethnically motivated subversion and counterculture to successfully dilute the character of the country in a negative way. Contrast that to the American culture to which the modern wave of immigrants has emigrated, and you get a sense of why this wave has permanently transformed this country. As far back as 1989, when the counterculture to Americanism and patriotism was far less potent than it is today, Reagan was already ominously warning the public. Quote, this is back into speech. But now we're about to enter the 90s and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer in style. Look, I don't remember the 80s. I was born in the 80s. I would die to even go back in America, to an America of the 90s. That is what we have to remember. 
we don't agree about what is a man, what's a woman, what's a border, what's right, what's wrong, what's a criminal, what's a victim, what's a citizen, what's an alien. We can't agree on anything anymore. Pile on top of that the irresponsible chain migration from the third world in large, large numbers, not in small numbers, but in large numbers, and the welfare system and the values. And, and the values is another thing. Notice how, going back to what we mentioned before, after the death of McKinley, when McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, the challenge of that era in the early 1900s was anarchists, just like it was in the 1950s with communists. At each era, we worked to, to keep out of the country the values that most threatened us. So the immediately enacted legislation to keep out anarchists, to keep out communists. We had 9-11, and we had people coming in with Sharia law. Could you ever have imagined anyone up to this generation doubling our migration, roughly 150,000 a year from the Middle East, in such large numbers when Islam is even less enlightened than when it was 100 years ago, with the internet radically fueling, fueling so much radicalism? Not to say they're all like that, but there's no way we could vet them. We're, we're talking about background checks right now on guns. What about background checks on every person coming in as we used to do? The illegals get in without background checks. Another girl was raped in Montgomery County, Maryland by two illegals from El Salvador that were allowed to come in recently. I'll have an article on that. I have tons more of these cases. Today we focus mainly, mainly on welfare and the public charge, but the criminality, the gangs, the MS-13 culture, the Islamic terrorists that are caught every day by the FBI and the ones we don't catch. Where is the Republican Party focusing on this? Where is Donald Trump even? At least he pushed this modest regulation, but he's got to stay on message. I hope this show has served you well. These are the types of shows we want to do. So if anyone is looking for a change from the soap opera of politics and wants to get educated on history and our values, but focused very much on the here and now, conservativereview.com is your website. Conservative Review YouTube page is your video. Go to iTunes or Stitcher. You, you could hear the podcast through audio if that is your preference, but definitely subscribe to our YouTube page on Conservative Review. At RM Conservative is the Twitter account. And... D. Horowitz at blazemedia.com is the email. Send me your comments, concerns, thoughts, or complaints at that email anytime. I will try to read through most of them. I don't always have time, but I try to make an effort to respond to as many people as I can. This is a family effort. This is a group effort. Let's create a new movement to truly make America's foundational values great again. Mm -hmm.